Good morning, planet Earth. This is your host, Hacker Mike, coming at you from an undisclosed location at Base Camp North in the northern tier, or is it the western tier, whatever, on the border between Pennsylvania and New York, way upstate, way in the boonies, where it is absolutely beautiful. We drove up along the Delaware River, and we saw the most amazing nature, and then we took the long road over here, and uh, it is just a blessing to be in America, let me tell you. I took some pictures here. We have fog-covered mountains and rivers and golden trees, or multicolored trees. So um, I'm going to spare you my ramblings this morning, and out of compassion, I deleted a bunch of uh, stuff. I'll put it at the very end of the episode, so if you really want to listen to it, uh, you're welcome. But I'm going to put the good stuff up front for now going to not give you the completely random scoop because I think we're actually onto something here with the cyber communists. And um, I'm listening and clipping this MIT introduction to artificial intelligence and I think that I might be hearing the subtext, the subconscious signaling going um, in any case you have to think that this is the introductory course to the people who are already sold on the idea of building Chairman Mao again in the computer a lot of them and a lot of the professors are as well now we don't know who is who and I so assume we'll have some algorithm decide between them, but we're going to read it from that perspective, which is a biased perspective. But I think you'll have some insights into things. If you listen carefully to what he says, you might hear my argument. All right, so I'm re-recording the intro. I only have a couple of clips this morning, but I think they're worthwhile to listen to. And uh, <clears throat> I'll put a link in the show notes as to where we got this from. Yeah, so this seems to be pretty good. The only problem is the cable may be uh, crackling a little bit. If I move... If I move the uh, <clears throat> phone a little bit... Yeah, you hear that? Anyways, I just put this thing in my pocket and then we can continue. All right. So as long as I don't have to hold this thing in my hand. But I thought the uh, the air the uh, sound quality was pretty damn good. <clears throat> yeah. So what are we gonna talk about, guys?
I guess we could go over the uh, topic of the um, the cyber communist chairman. I'm still working on that name. The chairperson of the cyber communists. Meaning the algorithm created by the people to determine the truth and to enforce it. But more than that, Well, walking up a hill here. <clears throat> More than the truth. Whew. It turns into censorship. I mean, this is a conspiracy theory now. Just a made-up one. But, uh... I mean, has it ever occurred to you that maybe these algorithms, these machine learning systems, are intent? The creators of them, the programmers, believing in these illusions of deep learning, or just automating their own biases? I mean, that has been proven that there's a lot of bias in machine learning. And that it's very difficult to get rid of. But if the uh, critical theory the Frankfurt School is correct that they want to start the uh, takeover of society through the schools and they have a whole generation or generations of people indoctrinated what if that bias is now being implemented in the computer system what if that is the next level But in any case, I mean, we can think about malice, ill will, or whatever. But the algorithms are definitely causing conflict and being used to coordinate attacks causing people guiding them to attack and we have to think that maybe that is the intended you know this hate that we see and maybe that is the intent 
the intended result of the system. More conflict. So, I guess I'm not very well articulating myself. And I really don't know enough about this topic from a background, just giving you some off-the-cuff ideas. But this was the idea that was born from my discussions. trying to understand why people would want this overlord to settle the score, to settle disputes. Because they see the other people as wrong-headed, as wrong-thinking. And they have the... they want to feel safe. And they've been downtrodden for so long that they think that finally this salvation will come when the uh, chairperson of the cyber communist rises to power, takes over, and ends the, uh, the conflict. This is some amazing nature here, people. Amazing. I don't think a picture could do justice. It's very hard to do spectacle effects. But I guess I could snap a picture and see how it turns out. Let's see. All right. Recording in progress. All right, can you hear me? Yeah, it looks like it's recording. There's the microphone right there. Oh well, if this recording gets lost, it's not going to be a loss to humanity. We're just talking shit. Filling up our time together. <clears throat> I kind of wish I could... Uh, be smarter. And um, I was thinking about this whole idea of artificial intelligence. And when it fails. And that maybe I am just artificially quote-unquote intelligent following some algorithms of my own, some patterns. They're not really intelligent, 
of any, any kind. Maybe I'm stupid and I get myself stuck. Lacking introspection. Self-examination. So, maybe I've reached the limits of my own capabilities and get stuck there. Well, in any case, these guys from MIT, they really um, have amazing mathematical abilities, the professor and a deep understanding of math. All right then, enough of this self-debasement here. We're going to continue to learn, to continue to improve, and um, We're going to see if we can um, <clears throat> come up with some good stuff ourselves. All right. Well, this is for me. I'm going to pause this recording and we're going to continue when I have something to say. Well, I guess I'm going to start clipping this MIT open courseware, and uh, he has some really great clips in there. He said the power that you gain over something is when you name it. That's the Rumpelstiltskin principle. If you can name something, you can gain power over it. <clears throat> so we're naming the cyber communist chairperson so we can think about it and gain power over it. Wow, the deer here, up here north, are much darker than the ones down south. Their coat. I guess that's their winter coat. Now you have a place to hang that knowledge. So we'll be talking about this frequently from now into the rest of the semester. The power of being able to name things. Symbolic labels give us power over concepts. So, trivial ideas are not simple. Simple ideas are not trivial. Simple is powerful. And artificial intelligence and machine learning, the simplest principles are the most powerful, he says. Over concepts. While we're here, I should also say that this is a very simple idea, generate and test. And you might be tempted to say to someone, we learned about generate and test today, but it's a trivial idea. The word trivial is a, is a word I would like you to purge from your vocabulary because it's a very dangerous label.
And the reason it's dangerous is because there's a difference between trivial and simple. What is it? What's the difference between labeling something as trivial and calling it simple? Yes? Exactly so. He says that simple can be powerful, and trivial makes it sound like it's not only simple, but of little worth. So many MIT people miss opportunities because they have a tendency to think that ideas aren't important unless they're complicated. But the most simple ideas in artificial intelligence are often the most powerful. Now, we could teach an artificial intelligence course to you that would be so full of mathematics that it would make a course 18 professor gag. But those ideas would be merely gratuitously complicated and gratuitously mathematical and gratuitously not simple. Simple ideas are often the most powerful. All right. So the next clip is going to... I skipped over a whole bunch of great material. And you're going to have to uh, watch this yourself. For the simple reason that I can't give justice to all of it. A lot of it's visual. And almost everything he does is clippable. So that I would end up clipping his whole speech. And uh, that's kind of silly. But I'm going to pick out pieces that I think are interesting. He talks about the bulldozer AI, the age we're in right now, where we just throw compute at something and we try and substitute heavy computation for intelligence. Now, Vapnik says that even that is not good enough. And Wolfram also will tell us that there's things that are undecidable. It doesn't matter how good your compute is. You won't be able to figure that out. But that won't stop people from trying. <clears throat> and that kind of brings us into this whole idea of self-deception and interpretation. Where it doesn't really matter if the algorithm is producing the truth. It's really a representation of power. When YouTube shuts you down, when the algo, the tyranny of the algo expresses itself as a negative, it doesn't matter if it's a true negative or a false negative, false positive or whatever. The veracity, the truth of it doesn't matter because it will act on you according to the terms and services that you agree to. Right? There's no freedom of speech here. It's just this long contract that you agreed to um, that changes all the time that you can never keep up with. That basically says that they will eat your lunch if they want to. So when the algo decides to eat your lunch, you know, you have no recourse because you're at a position of weakness. And, um, you know, when the uh, Silicon Valley people decide that they want to deplatform someone because they don't want his speech or her speech on the platform, um, and they do it all at the same time, it's very hard to stand up for Alex Jones. 
And it's hard to stand up with people you don't agree with. And it's hard to fight to the death for someone, the, the, the right for someone to say something that you don't agree with. But um, when they come for you, it's a different story. And uh, what we're seeing is more and more people are put underneath the boot power of the bulldozer AI, coupled with the army of millennials that are feeding it. There's Deep Blue. That uh, takes us to the next age beyond the, the, uh, the age of uh, expert systems and the business age. Takes us into this age here, which I call the bulldozer age. Because this is the time when people began to see that we had at our disposal unlimited amounts of computing, and frequently you can substitute computing for intelligence. So no one would say that Deep Blue uh, does anything like what a human uh, chess master does, but nevertheless Deep Blue, by processing data like a bulldozer processes gravel, uh, was able to beat the world champion. Now, <clears throat> I'm including this clip, and I'm not sure about it, but here's, here's a theory. Here's just an idea, an unproved hypothesis. But when someone's talking about a long march with their friends, I'm really thinking about the long march of the communists. Like, that's actually a key word, um, a key idea of the uh, long march of Marxism into academia and we don't know who this guy is how he stands politically but um, let's just think for a second and I may be wrong but let's just hypothesize here <clears throat> and look for this long march going forward right into the chairman of the Cyber Communist Party. I mean, he has all of his scientists lined up, and a lot of these scientists and academics are definitely members of the Cyber Communist Party marching towards the utopian society together. So um, <clears throat> I thought this kind of triggered my uh, spidey sense right now, so I'm putting it in. And if I'm wrong, hey, I'm wrong. This is just an idea, something to think about. Just a pattern that I match. Some kind of artificial intelligence. <laughs> okay. I ought to be a little more optimistic about the future. Because we've had a, a long history here and we haven't solved the problem. But one reason why we can be a little optimistic about the future is because all of our friends have been on the march. And our friends include uh, the uh, cognitive psychologists, the developmental psychologists, the linguists, sometimes the philosophers, and especially the paleoanthropologists. Because it is becoming increasingly clear why we're actually uh, different from the chimpanzees and how we got to be that way. All right. Now, the thing is, is that Chomsky 
is definitely on the far left. Um, but he's also a brilliant man. And he's also the inventor of language theory. He worked on artificial intelligence. But when this teacher here is quoting him with authority, it gives us an ambiguous message. Not only is he quoting the authority on language theory, but he's, if we just combine that with a march, it's creating a subconscious uh, effect for me. that I'm like, oh, first it's the long march, now he's introducing Chomsky, who's like the leader of the long march. Definitely a very critical person, a very super intelligent person. But, um, and then we're talking about reducing the planet down to a couple hundred people where the genetic um, mutations will stick and then rebuilding it from there. Um, like these are some pretty dangerous ideas there, true or not, but we're creating a narrative and um, I just want you to be aware of these things because they might pop up later. Just remember, we are at MIT here, and these are the elites being indoctrinated. It's their first lesson. And maybe they're going to be brought on board to help create the cyber communist chairperson. But somehow, shortly before 50,000 years ago, some small group of us developed a capability that separated us from all other species. It was an accident of evolution, and these accidents may or may not happen, but it happened to produce us. It's also the case that we probably necked down as a species to a few thousand or maybe even a few hundred individuals, something which made these accidental changes, accidental evolutionary products more capable of sticking. But this leads us to speculate on what it was that happened 50,000 years ago. And paleoanthropologists, Noam Chomsky, uh, a lot of people reach similar conclusions. And that conclusion is, if I can, I'll, I'll quote Chomsky, so I'll use the voice of authority. It seems that shortly before 50,000 years ago, some small group of us acquired the ability to take two concepts and combine them to make a third concept without disturbing the original two concepts without limit. And from a perspective of an AI person like me, what Chomsky seems to be saying is, we learned how to begin to describe things in a way that was intimately connected with language. And that, in the end, is what separates us from the chimpanzees. OK, so I'm going to throw in one last clip here for, the, for good measure, uh, or maybe two. I'm waiting for uh, something. so. I've got a minute to, uh, to think. But he's saying that um, it's our eyes that think. It's our visual system that thinks. And I agree with that because our visual system is very, very powerful. And that's also the idea of the introspector. I, I, I'm at risk of just bothering you guys with that idea. But basically, 
we want to see inside by creating pages of interesting material for us to look at so that we can then process it visually and take action on it. And he's also saying that <coughs> education is narrative. It's storytelling and story understanding. So that's good. And that we're commanding our perceptive systems to imagine things. Things that we've never seen before. Yeah, like a science fiction book. Or a religious text. Like, think about the story of the apocalypse. And the stories of hell and grimfire and Dante's Inferno and all that. Those are commanding our imagination to see things. Imagining things. That don't exist. That we've never seen before. So that's uh, an interesting way to uh, look at things. Okay, well, um, I'm going to uh, skim forward and see if I can find any other good clips for today's episode. So you might say, well, let's just study language. No, you can't do that because we think with our eyes. So language does two things. Number one, it enables us to make descriptions. Descriptions enable us to tell stories, and storytelling and story understanding is what all of education is about. That's going up. And going down, it enables us to marshal the resources of our perceptual systems and even command our perceptual systems to imagine things we've never seen. So, so you might say, well, let's just study language. No, you can't do that because we think with our eyes. So language does two things. Number one, it enables us to make descriptions. Descriptions enable us to tell stories. And storytelling and story understanding is what all of education is about. That's going up. And going down, it enables us to marshal the resources of our perceptual systems and even command our perceptual systems to imagine things we've never seen. So. OK, so get ready for a boring talk. We're going to talk about sets and attributes and indexes. So the problem statement is this. <clears throat> I define a bunch of sets. Now we're talking about tree nodes here, okay? So a tree node is a tuple of fields. And um, it's got a node type. But it's got a set of fields, some of them that can be null. Some of these fields are distinctive for a certain tree type. And um, I've got a bunch of functions that I've defined that map one set of fields onto another inside of this graph. So <clears throat> I have all of these fields. I have all of these node types. Basically, I'm going to define a bunch of um, functions that do different things. These are mathematical functions. 
that map one set of fields onto another, and now I want to know which of these sets overlap and which ones don't. So, <clears throat> I was just thinking, if I do a sum, a count of which fields have how many objects in them, right? Or how many, um, and a field turns out to be a function. So if I have a name field, I also have a name function. If I have a type field, I have a type function. For example, if I want to know how many names also have types, and it's going to be quite a few. And I want to know, is there a union of the domain of name and the domain of types of the source field? Or is there a union of them? Do they overlap? Do they intersect? Is it a subset? Is one a subset of the other? So is there a way I could do this without having to <clears throat> iterate over all the items? So I was thinking if I sum up the count of, let's say, type, I sum up the count of nodes that have the field type <clears throat> in that group. So I go over each set and I sum up all the fields that are there. So basically it's saying for all these domains, for all these functions, look in the set of the domains and see what other functions originate from that same pool. So I can just say for each object I could just count. Are you in this are you the domain of this function or not? That's going to be quite the uh, set. It's going to be quite the uh, list. Um, but we know some of these are mutually exclusive. So in our in our ontology, in our ontology, we know we have an enumeration, and we know that uh, you know record types and union types are exclusive, and all these different node types they exclude each other. So we know that. And then, um, well, we know that the name has the word type in it. So we could make another set for all the different names. 
function and the function is oh this no type has the word type in it or ends with the word type this no type ends in the word decal or this no type is in this set or this list so we could have different rules for mapping no types onto other sets okay or names so we can Take the name and split it up and look for substrings and so forth. Okay. So that's all good. And we can see that there's different subsets that are disjoint and some that are commingling. And then we get into function calls. Well, this function calls this function. And this function has this body and calls this function. We can even have functions that call themselves recursively. So we can get into this humongous set theory on functions that call functions, functions that use types, etc 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 so we can get into all types of complicated interesting stuff but my original idea was <clears throat> well, we have disjoint items and we know that certain fields occur together And um, I collected all types of um, permutations. Like here's a sampling of pairs of functions, triples, quads, etc. I guess we could go all the way up to the different tuple sizes. Here's an array of size n. So we can iterate over all these different types of then when we know all these different counts by by combination you could say this field co-occurs with this field and I guess we could start building up our um, type information that way This uh... <clears throat> okay, so let's just be clear on this because we might actually have a listener. <clears throat> if I take all the pairs of all the fields and I say, here's the count of how many times these two fields occur together. That would mean that they have the same domain. Now, I could actually take 
the range of them. And say, this is the type ID and this is the name ID. And they co-occur so that this name and this type occur together. It's not so interesting, but maybe this type and this size co-occur together. That gives you more predictive power. Where this string and this type occur. So I'm, what I'm trying to get at so we know the domains now of all these different fields, but we don't know the ranges. How do we model the range? Like the function comes from somewhere, but it goes somewhere. So what if we were to start modeling all the fields that go to something? Like this thing is the range these are all the things that have the type of this one node that share the same type. These are all the things that share the same name. Or they share the same name string. <coughs> they say, share the same constant expression. So we can start getting into this constant expression here is reached by all these different things. And this constant expression has this type. So we could say, has this node type. So we could say, oh well. This node type array. So these are it's a subset. So we have a set of types, things that are typed, and they have a set a set subset of arrays. And then we could say this array is used by these expressions. So indexed by something. So basically we're talking about how it's being used. So we could start building up a, a different model of each node of how it's used. So the source node tells you how it's where it's coming from, but we could build a whole nother graph of tuples. <clears throat> the input 
where it says thing, these things reference this node. These things reference this value. So we could turn the whole graph around and restate it like that. And that might be interesting. I haven't thought about that one in a while, but it's definitely logical. So, <clears throat> so got a whole nother model of how something is used things that reach it and then so things are unused they're used only by one thing they're used by many things they're used all in the same way they're used in different ways it's used ambiguously yeah and then when we get into these ambiguous usages it has a complicated decoding function let's say you know like the girdle function and some type of crazy self-referencing system that's indirect <clears throat> you know pointer d pointer logic and all types of crazy stuff that you can't directly infer. And we need to go into deeper and deeper logic for. Okay. So I was thinking, what's an invariant? What can we really say is an invariant? So over time, we have different processes running on computers, separate processes, isolated processes, where the memory of one process rules over or determines the structure of the memory of another process. That's an invariant. That happens all over the time in all these systems. One system Determine the structure of another. The bootstrapping compiler determines the structure of the compiler's memory, and the compiler determines the structure of the application. So we have three levels. We've got the bootstrapping compiler, which is the subset language that compiles the compiler. That's what we've been focusing on for a while. And we have some application that runs, it's compiled. And then we have the input to that application. Now all those three things could be the same. The bootstrap could be compiling itself and treating itself as the application. That would be one rare case. But a lot of times it's separated into three groups. But we don't know.
and we have different versions of all of these different things over time. But we have code that's encoded in memory, instructions in memory that are interpreted as code. Everything is memory. Except the machine itself. Can't necessarily read the um, source code of the machine. But we have interpreters. <clears throat> can read their source code. So at the simplest level, you just have one interpreter, you feed it the instructions and it runs them. One plus one is two. So, <clears throat> so we have a set of memory, and the relationship between the one set of the memory and the other is that controls or formats or causes or generates. But it's really the control relationship. So you have one piece of memory controlling another piece of memory. And that is the invariant in the system, I think, the control function. So it does, swims like a duck, controls like a compiler, right? And you have some function. Some function is a piece of memory. And that function is executed. an interpreter so the function in memory determines the behavior of the code so we have a piece of memory that determines the behavior of the registers and causes change over time establishes a relationship between two states so we have state changes over time of variables and I think we can reduce those size, the sizes of these states. Everyone says they're so huge, but maybe we can compress them. Because we know what generated them. Because we can see the control relationships.
the invariance. And that's the idea. So, <clears throat> so this reverse usage thing will say this node is used by this field. It's reached by this field and the thing reaching us has this profile. It has these fields. So these fields reach us via this field. So we're starting to go back. Start to go backwards and say, what are all the What are all the things that can reach us? And count them. Yeah, we've got, got to look at all the different variations we're going to have to collect. But I'm thinking on a node-by-node -node basis. Yeah, we're going to have to uh, explore some of this um, <clears throat> on the computer. So how do we get back into this question of, do we have to compare all these different sets with each other? <clears throat> well, can we index them? objects, we create these different subsets, and then when we create the different subsets, we create the different subsets, and the counts per field, and then we can say, we can just start by comparing the counts, and saying how many types how many fields of type name do you have? Right? Or how many names reach you? 
so once we've collected all the things that reach something, then we can also sum by them and say, I'm reached by name, I'm reached by type, I'm reached by size, etc., etc., etc. I've got a hundred of these and a hundred of those. So you have different permutations and different different things that you use. And you could say this reaches that. And then these sums, we could then compare them and we can look for ones that have overlaps or have no overlaps. Before we even compare all the individual nodes, we just compare the different counts. And I think we can exclude a whole bunch of stuff that way. All right then. Good morning, planet Earth. This is me, your hacker, Mike. Your what do we call it? Your host. Anyway, we've got uh, a special episode today from a special location. It's 5.45 in the morning, and it is foggy and cold in Base Camp North. We are about three hours, well, actually we did a longer drive, about five hours uh, drive yesterday, where we went... Um, We went along the uh, Delaware River, didn't take the highway, we just drove along the river all the way up to um, Easton, Pennsylvania. <clears throat> it was really beautiful. Damn, it's cold out here. My fingers are freezing. 36 degrees. Yeah, it's definitely a little colder than I'm used to. We're farther up north, so, um, <clears throat> and I don't have my headset, so I hope this audio is even acceptable, but what does it mean to be acceptable in, um, on this podcast that nobody listens to probably, except you, my, my favorite listener. But the therapy sessions are working. And um, it has been good for me personally to try this um, experience and to work out my thoughts and have the time to, uh, to go over them because my head is definitely messed up from all this confusion, as you can tell. Endless loops and undecidabilities have plagued my brain an unclear thought illusions and interpretations as Vlad would say <clears throat> so luckily I've gotten some help from some of the experts in the world who've given me a kick in the butt 
We're literally in the middle of a cloud here on a river. I'm gonna have to put some gloves on. no idea what we're going to talk about today. Um, <clears throat> well, I have a clip from yesterday that I didn't publish. Can you imagine I didn't go for a walk yesterday and I didn't publish a clip? But I was, uh, I did take our time, take the time that I would normally do my walk. I worked on some Haskell stuff. And I pushed it to Git, but I created a private repository. Because a lot of times, if I create a public repository, I stop working on it for some reason. Once I publish something, no matter how crappy it is, um, <clears throat> I kind of um, abandon it. So this time, I decided to create a private repository and I'm going to continue working on it until I like, until I make something that I really like. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of weird about the psychology, isn't it? Which is me. In any case, I'm starting to really get into Haskell, and I um, abandoned the. Um, Jupyter Notebooks, and I'm back to uh, using Emacs-controlled interactive Haskell, the GHCI, which has a great advantage of being able to interrupt the execution if you accidentally print some humongous string, <clears throat> which was a real pain on the notebook. So, making good progress, and um, learning a lot about these uh, functions and, and starting to think functionally is pretty damn cool. So yes, uh, in yesterday's clip, I left off, I'm basically working out this idea that if I want to compare sets, I can compare what attributes occur, sums of attributes or sums of functions of things. <clears throat> well, attributes the sums of the counts of attributes that occur there. So that, that kind of gives you a fingerprint. Um, 
but I guess a bitmap would also work because um, if we can fit all the IDs into a, a vector, we can just compare that vector direct those two vectors directly. If we only have forty thousand items. And a bitmap might be a better representation. Because if you have 32 bits per of color, for example, or 64 bits of color for each node, you could store a lot of information. That characterizes that node. You could create sets, a bit per set that's important. Like the node type or the node class. And the node class could be encoded into the node type. So, <clears throat> like the first bit could be, is it a type? And, and you could have new, mutually exclusive bits. So when you want to compare two subsets, those are just ranges of integers or selectors on that set of integers or masks on those integers. We're doing a bit and a bitmap and operation. I suppose the GPU could do some of that too. If it's massively, massively parallel. And plus, <coughs> determining these sets we don't have to do it all the time. And once we figure out the big set relationships, prove them like that. Things will become easier. I'm listening to the MIT um, open courseware on machine learning. And the guy, he derives the uh, Vapnik equations so elegantly. We well, definitely need to know your algebra there. Oh my God. 
So we're going to do a little bit of algebra. And he builds everything up, so quite nice what he does. And um, I'm going to listen to that whole course from the beginning. One of the clips that he says is, he said that creating representations which expose constraints. By formalizing the representation in mathematics, you're exposing the constraints, the pure representations help you find mathematical truths about the um, thing. So that's interesting. In any case, this is not even an episode I want to publish, really. Oh my God. Good morning. Good morning. This is not even an episode I want to publish, necessarily. But uh, in the spirit of openness, we're going to do it. Might be ruining our podcast score. I think I figured out that some people have, at least two people have this show on automatic download or something. We definitely get two listens for every episode, but um, Then let's put this on pause. I'm going to listen to some of this um, MIT guy some more. Just checking in. And I'll tack on that other crazy episode. So I wouldn't suggest actually listening to this stuff um, at the very end. But I'm going to put it on for posterity or for just the completeness of an archive. So um, I'm going to try and put the important stuff in the front. And, uh, yeah, sorry guys. All right. Now I got some headphones. I hope they're okay. They're not Bluetooth. I've given up on Bluetooth uh, headsets. This is just a little cable earpiece with a microphone. Let's listen to it. (laughs) 